You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Oz Network for our second edition, not second edition, second episode of our Halloween month of 2020. Last time we talked about the epic movie Twitches, where we saw twin witches save the world from darkness. And now we're going to see... Uh, a movie where the most unlikable characters fight the ugliest creatures imaginable on earth. Uh, great sequel. I feel like this is a good continuity of the story we've started so far with, you know, twitches. And now we're moving on to this really uh, high conceptual art film from dust till dawn. You know, I think that the, the story tracks and, uh, since this was Colin's pick for the episode, I am now the host, which, um, I now regret signing up to do that because um, I don't want to talk about this movie, um, but I'm forced to because I'm hosting. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to Dust Till Dawn. Hey. I'm Rossi, and plants don't talk. And my name is Colin, lowly dog. I have no idea where that was in the movie, so... Uh, I'll point it out. Good... I will f- find a way to point it out for you. Okay. Colin, what'd you make me d- watch? Like, what was this? This is amazing. <laughs> this this is Quentin Tarantino's technical follow-up to Pulp Fiction. This is Robert Rodriguez and his collaboration with Quentin Tarantino starting. This is the beginning of the grindhouse era of Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez films. This is George Clooney's, really, his big debut as a movie star. Um, this movie is crazy. It is insane. It is possibly my only movie that I actually watch on Halloween just because I love From Dust Till Dawn. This movie spawned straight-to-video releases. It spawned a TV series, which is absolutely incredible as well. This movie is amazing, and I'm already going to say you're wrong. Uh, good, because I already think you're wrong. <laughs> I, <laughs> I honestly, like, I came in, like, prepared to tell this joke of, like, Colin, this is Halloween month, not bad movie month. Because, like, that's genuinely the impression I got. Like, this is maybe one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, you've got to be kidding. I, I don't think... Th- I think there were a few moments where I, like, thought a line was funny or something that happened was a little funny. But otherwise, like, I was just, like, waiting for it to end. I, like, could not get through it sooner. Uh, I will say, I will give you some credit. I enjoyed the fact that it did not stay consistent. Like, I could not predict where the movie was going like this old west starting setting and then like the kidnapping stuff and then like the, like it's three parts this like beginning middle and end are all totally mm-hmm. different so like for a movie that takes you on a ride okay it did that well but like so much of this i just like could not get through it was just so unfortunate i hated the characters i felt like no one was likable uh that is the point right you you realize that even in pulp fiction that's the point of the movie right well i haven't seen that so i can't say um oh next week <laughs> halloween month part no, three, we're watching Pulp scary Fiction. godmother do not <laughs> um yeah but even if it is it's like why do i want to watch a movie about unlikable characters even if they're written to be unlikable it still means they're unlikable there are a few likable characters in this movie um i'll, I'll go through my opinions on it i just want to give my background with this movie uh i i mean I was a fan of Pulp Fiction. It wasn't like I was, oh, I can't wait for this From Dusk Till Dawn movie. Uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino had written this, I think, before Pulp Fiction came out. 
it was never intended to be something that he would direct. He was just doing it as a screenwriter. And then Robert Rodriguez, who I'm sure you're familiar with many of his films. You want to talk about uh, a very diverse uh, filmography. He gets his start making a super low-budget action movie, El Mariachi, that was intended just to be released in Mexico. Uh, it ends up getting a big-budget sequel, Desperado, and then later, Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Uh, he does From Dust Till Dawn. He does The Faculty. You think he's he's found his niche. And then he does the Spy Kids films and The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. And then he does Sin City. Uh, and then he does Alita, Battle Angel. I mean, Rob Rodriguez is one of my favorite filmmakers. But, I mean, at the time this movie came out... I didn't know anything other than Desperado and for Tarantino, I didn't know anything other than Pulp Fiction. But when I did see this eventually uh, on video, uh, it was it was the first experience I had older. When everybody's a kid, you will watch a movie back to back to back, you know, whether it be a Disney movie or Star Wars. Kids just do that. Okay, I finished Star Wars. I'm going to watch Star Wars again. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn as a teenager was probably the first time where I finished a movie and I immediately said, Oh, okay, I'm going to watch it again. What was crazy about that is I think it was 2 in the morning when I finished watching it. And I'm like, you know what? I should probably go to bed, but I'm watching From Dust Till Dawn again. And I mean, I, I still love this movie. It's, it's, it's meant to be a cheesy B-grade horror movie. It's meant to be a cheap, you know, crime thriller, Tarantino-style crime thriller. It, everybody's meant to be unlikable except for, you know, maybe one character. Um, th- this movie's amazing. I-, I can't wait to talk about this. Well, uh, you'll be doing most of the talking, so... <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah, I, there there was not too much that I really cared for or really liked about this movie. Uh, it just it just didn't sit right. Maybe this is a, a movie that I'd have to re-watch to, to like, see and appreciate now that I have a full understanding of everything. But still, I just... First watch, which is what the commentary you're getting today, I didn't like it. Uh, yeah, well, you know what's funny about that is that... Uh, People will not have heard this episode yet, but uh, in a few days, you're going to hear the beginning of our Brendan Fraser month for George of the Jungle. And I mentioned that we're going to be covering From Dust Till Dawn. And Ben says, knowing Rossi, I can tell you right now, he's going to hate it. And I doubted it a bit. I, I said uh, to myself, I didn't say this on air, but I thought Rossi liked Preacher. And to me, From Dust Till Dawn is like Preacher just to an extreme and in a way i'm kind of surprised that you didn't at least somewhat enjoy this movie because it is very similar to preacher you know it's unlikable characters traveling on the road um you have this mix of you know gritty uh southern western crime drama mixed with uh supernatural stuff a lot of gore a lot of over-the-top violence and i thought these were very similar so i'm kind of surprised you didn't like this more I don't know. I, I, I see. I feel like I, for me, I feel like I see the preacher characters as probably more likable so I can, uh, <laughs> it's like, kind of disturbing, but okay. <laughs> I, I just, maybe it's, well, when we watched preacher, like we kind of came in second season. So you didn't watch the first season. Cause I, I told you that it was kind of a pointless thing. So maybe mm. because I have like a full season of backlog. I don't know. From, outside like i see the comparisons but i just still i don't know i just found everyone really relatively unlikable and i felt like there was a lot of moments where i was just like this is how this movie is going and it just i don't know i I just couldn't get behind it as much as maybe i even wanted to because i knew you told me that there's like a out of nowhere like this third act comes in and it's like where did this come from 
And so like I knew that was coming along and maybe I was like expecting it to be better. I don't know. Maybe I was expecting it less B grade. I don't know. I just expectations to what I saw was just not, it didn't match. And, and I was a little disappointed. And Well, another question for you. Um, I, you said you haven't seen Pulp Fiction. Have you seen any Tarantino movies? Probably. I, I, <laughs> off the top of my head, I couldn't. So I'm also going to guess that you did not see Grindhouse, right? No. Okay, so the idea of Grindhouse really starts here with From Dust Till Dawn, because like Quentin Tarantino saw Robert Rodriguez made this movie El Mariachi, which he, he was beyond an independent filmmaker. I mean, he really had no schooling or anything. He was just, I have about $6,000. I want to make a movie for $6,000, and maybe it'll get released on home video in Mexico. Uh, and the movie ends up making a couple million dollars at the box office, and Quentin Tarantino sees this, and goes to Robert Rodriguez and says, I want to make a sequel to this, Desperado, which they recast, you know, with some real actors, Selma Hayek being one of them. That was her big breakthrough movie. Uh, Antonio Banderas kind of got the lead role in that. And Desperado becomes a big hit. And Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez just start this partnership where they both have this appreciation for the style of movie that's called Grindhouse, which is like 70s, uh, B-grade movies like this. And years later, after From Dust Till Dawn, they would do a project called Grindhouse, which was released in theaters as one movie. But the idea was it was a double feature. So Robert Rodriguez would direct one movie called Planet Terror, which was even more B-grade than this. And it was meant to look like 70s style with degraded film and everything. And that one was like a alien zombie type movie. And then Quentin Tarantino did the second part, which was Death Proof, which was just like a, a, a B-grade horror film about a, a guy with a car who would run people down. And they released it as one movie. Now, it didn't do well at the box office, but they both had this love for that genre. And later, that would lead to the Machete movies, which I'm also guessing you have not seen the Machete movies? Nope. Okay. <laughs> if you don't like From Dust Till Dawn, chances are you're not going to like Grindhouse or uh, Machete. But uh, there are a lot of connections, especially where, where some of the ideas for these movies started here with From Dust Till Dawn. Maybe it's it's one of those situations where I've got to have an appreciation for it or something going into it. I don't know. I think that I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm and it's not that I want to hate this movie in any way because I don't want to like come in like oh I hate this movie it's the worst but I just I couldn't get behind it and maybe it's one of those things I'll watch other movies that are similar and maybe I'll like those and maybe I'll have to go back and watch this years later and be like oh well you know that that wasn't that bad. Uh, but as it stands now, uh, no. Mm -hmm. Well, let's find out why. Okay. Uh, yeah. So like this start of the movie was very different from what I expected as well. I was like, this dust till dawn. I knew that there was some sort of like horror -y thing at the end, but I was like, how does this get there? And so it like starts with this sheriff coming to the, the, the liquor store slash gas station stop. It, it very role role setting, uh, Long story short, the brothers, George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino, have kidnapped two women and are robbing the liquor store or mm -hmm. something to that effect. Like they're trying to get money. I think they were trying to get a roadmap or something like that because I remember hearing that comment. But uh, it, it they try to like coerce the store manager into just letting the guy go. But then... Uh, Quentin Tarantino brother, uh, I can't, I don't know the character's name, so um, shoots the sheriff, and then they pretty much burn down the liquor store and ride off into the sunset. Uh, 
some of the things that annoyed me in this is like I could barely hear what any of these characters were saying in the beginning. And I was like, is it intentional? Am I like supposed to raise the volume max? Um, I like had full blast on and I could barely hear some of the people talking except for the, the yelling with the brothers. But just a total like unexpected start to the movie with, with this. I, um, and like George Clooney, I didn't expect him in the movie. Like, he, like I didn't, I don't remember if you had told me he was in the movie, but it took me as a shock that he was in this and I, I just did not expect this. And then lo- they get to this motel and they have it kidnapped another woman because the two girls that were in the store escaped and, and they check into this motel and I'm very unsure of the motives of why they're kidnapping these people. Is it to get across the border? Um, they never really explain, but they just have all these hostage victims that end up getting killed along the way. And then we get the great line of uh, sit, plant yourself there because plants don't talk, <laughs> uh, which was one of the, the good lines of the movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, and meanwhile, this trio family, this, uh, you know, father and their two kids are there, you know, former pastor and these two uh, random kids, I guess, uh, t- didn't really give them a justifiable story arc, but um, they're there and they're going on a, a road trip or something and they stop it. They decide the fathers insisted on going to this motel to have a real bed because sleeping in the RV was not good enough. He wants to spend more money. Um, and, and they, they almost run over George Clooney in the street. And, um, yeah, I, I, I got I, it so far. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and they killed the, the woman's killed in the hotel room after they wanted to, the Quentin Tarantino wanted to watch TV. Um, they also duct taped his hand because they didn't have uh, medical supplies. Uh, it's all over the place. Not only my commentary, my sort of recapping of it, but the movie itself is all over the place. And I'm going to stop it with the people checking into the hotel. Uh, okay, so this first half, I mean, really, it's an hour and two minutes into this movie before you even see a vampire. And there's not even hints of it. I think this is the one thing that's, uh, that's different with the TV series is that uh, the TV series, by the way, it's something that we should definitely check out at some point because uh, it really I'm gives a, 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 it is, it's a great show. And, and again, even more similar to Preacher than this would be because they start off with the supernatural stuff early, but they, they found a way to adapt the entire movie into one se- season. And this opening scene that you get in the, the liquor store gas station is an entire episode. And then, you know, you'll get an entire episode just on um when they're crossing the border and things like that and they they expand a lot on the mythology to show you know i guess motives for why particularly quentin tarantino's character why he is as crazy as he is uh but there is a lot of stuff that uh i'm not going to say you miss i mean there is a lot to unpack in this movie but it's, it's always been interesting to me that this if you were to watch this knowing absolutely nothing about it then what would the reaction be when suddenly it becomes a vampire movie later on? We'll get to that. But this whole opening here, there is no hint that there is anything supernatural about this movie. It is just a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, there is some backstory with the characters that uh, I, I think you missed here. And again, whether it would add anything to the movie or not, I don't know. But uh, they mention in the news report that follows... I missed as in, like, I didn't see it. I, like, ignored it in the movie or, like, this is show stuff that you're... No, that you probably just missed because it was mentioned in the movie. Because uh, oh, okay. that first liquor store robbery, yeah, you're not meant to know anything that's going on. You know that Quentin Tarantino's a little bit, you know, 
little bit out there uh, because the before you even have the reveal that they're there, this clerk is acting completely normal. And then when the, the sheriff goes into the bathroom and they're basically saying, I said to get rid of the guy, you can see this guy's really trying. I mean, he's, he's, he says he has a line in the movie, I deserve an Academy Award for what I'm doing under the circumstances. And Tarantino's whispering to George Clooney, you know, oh, he's, he's signaling the cop. You know, he scratched his nose or stuff like that. And then this comes up later when the cop comes back out and Tarantino out of nowhere just shoots the, the cop in the head because he's claiming that he saw this guy mouth the words, help us. Now, in the TV show, you do get more on that. But even just that part of the character where he's just, he's, he's completely unhinged. Like Tarantino's character, there's a screw loose there. And that'll come up later with the um, the bank clerk that they kidnap. Now, the scene that follows the opening scene where there's the news report, which, by the way, are, did you recognize or are you familiar with the, the newscaster who's doing the news report there? No. Should I have? Uh, well, I mean, possibly. I mean, that's um, Kelly Preston, who was married to John Travolta. She was a semi-famous actress as well, but she just died recently, like a couple of months ago. And this was sort of, I, I guess, a cameo role for uh, her in this movie as the newscaster. But this is where they give all that backstory, which is, just to sum it up, George Clooney was in prison. Quinn Tarantino's brother broke him out. They robbed a bank. Uh, in the process of robbing this bank and escaping, they killed, I think they said, like, four Texas Rangers, three police officers. They killed one civilian that they ran over with a car, and then they kidnapped the bank teller. So, I mean, they're they're, like as bad as bad guys get. I have in to this say movie. the, the moment where they put the like death toll on the screen mm-hmm. and we're like doing tallies of like, that brings their total of uh, law enforcement at six or, yeah. or whatever they had. I thought that was so funny. Yeah. That was probably one of the biggest highlights of the movie for me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the backstory with these characters, it's meant to set them up as being awful people, but the tone of the movie, I think, is what makes it just a little bit more fun. I mean, Pulp Fiction would be similar to this in a way, you know, less supernatural, a little less B-grade. But the the way that, like, the, the scene is with the, the bank teller when you see them riding in the car and you get that little bubble on the outside just showing she's in the back almost as if you could see through the trunk. You know, it's just, it's just a funny little detail there, you know, that, that I guess lightens the tone of the movie a bit. The fact that uh, Tarantino gets the hole blown in his hand and he looks through it and he just duct, tape, duct tapes it and everything. Uh, and even just Tarantino's character, like he's completely crazy and everything that happens in this movie is because he's either paranoid or he's seeing things and imagining things and again the tv show does a little bit more to to whether that was the intention of this movie or not i don't know but they do more to show that there's reasons for that uh just the absurdity of him saying he mouthed the words help us and like clooney knows that his brother's crazy but he's like i'm just gonna go along with this anyways uh i, I do have to appreciate when the uh the the the, the death of the clerk comes uh the the liquor store clerk that is where Clooney just shoots the bottles out from behind him, and then he throws the flaming toilet paper roll to burn him. Just the fact there's a burning person on camera, kind of funny. <laughs> uh, that's my own sixth sense of humor, but that's uh, it's a good way to die. Uh, and um, falling on the popcorn too, so you hear the yeah, the pop. pop like, pop, come on, pop. that was good, right? You like that? That was all right. I th- at yeah. first I thought it was fireworks, and I was like, why is no one running out of the store? And then yeah. I realized it was popcorn, and I was like, okay, yeah, that's funny, but not. As uh, it, there is better, a fine moment, but I thought there were some better ones at this. Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, and again, the movie's not meant to be a comedy. I mean, there are comedy 
aspects to it, but it's not meant to be like, oh, ha, 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 you know, uh, it's, it's still has a sense of humor to it, though, that uh, I think makes it a little bit easier to watch such unlikable people. Um, the When they're in the hotel and they're giving, again, more backstory. So they rob this bank and they're going to a place in Mexico. So they have some contact in Mexico that for a certain cut, a certain percentage of what they took from this bank they'll keep them in this place called El Rey, which uh, is just a safe place for criminals. Like, you're protected there by the mafia or whatever. That's the whole idea behind it. And then just the fact that Tarantino's like, can you get them down to 20%? And he goes, no, you don't understand, Richie. Like, they, you don't bargain with these people. And he's still insisting on doing it. Like, Tarantino's character is such a joke in this movie. And I, I, th- I think that's kind of funny just to watch that he's clearly completely crazy but also really dumb <laughs> and that george clooney the younger brother has come all right no he is the older brother in this never mind i always assume he's the younger brother for maybe because he looks a little bit younger than tarantino but you know george clooney just has complete control over him but still he knows his brother's crazy and he's like he's screwed everything up but i'm still gonna cover for him anyways i kind of like the, the relationship between the two of them um and uh yeah so the family uh I, I'm surprised you say that they're just random kids too. Cause I mean, I don't think the kids necessarily need a motivation. Harvey Keitel, who of course, you know, incredible actor, uh, and had already done Pulp Fiction just prior to this with Tarantino. Uh, Harvey Keitel is one of the most respected actors in the world in 1996 when this comes out. And his character is pretty deep. I mean, he's a former preacher whose wife died and he sort of just lost his faith and his kids are still under the impression, no, you should go back to what you did before. You should continue to be a preacher. And he's like, you know, I just, I don't have it in me anymore. Uh, and and the, I, don't, I don't know, do the kids really need more backstory than the fact that they're trying to support their dad and their dad's just has no faith anymore? I, I felt like the Kate, she got a little bit because I felt like she was the one really pushing the, the, the faith angle. Uh, I just felt like the his son had nothing going on. Like he played guitar in the hotel room. He like tried to convince the dad to rat the guys out at the border, and like that was the extent of his character. Like he hadn't done a whole lot. Like I just felt like well, he got I no mean, true, specific story. But again, in in fairness to the movie, I mean he, he's. Spoiler alert, he's not going to live for that long, so <laughs> I don't know how much more I would need out of him. But I mean, I like all the, the characters in this movie. Um, I, I would definitely say Kate is the one character I would say is likable in this movie to a certain extent, uh, which is you know why she's important to this movie. Uh, but I, I like their backstory. And, and Juliette Lewis, who plays Kate, like, are you familiar with her at all? Please say yes. Well, I wasn't... I'm never familiar with someone when I see them. Like, I don't know. I can't place any faces other than, like, big... T- like, I knew that was George Clooney. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did look up all these people after because I was like, I, the names sound familiar, but I can't place anyone. But, yeah, I was I, I was familiar with her mm-hmm. and uh, the father. Yeah. I mean, Juliette Lewis, I, I guess she kind of got her breakthrough in the Christmas Vacation movie. But after that... And she was very young when she made this movie. I think she was only, like, 21... 20, she was less than 25, for sure. But she was very young when she made this. And she already just sort of had a reputation, not just in the movies she made of always kind of playing the bad girl, like the most famous one she had just prior to this was Natural Born Killers with Woody Harrelson, where you want to talk about a movie with unlikable characters. <laughs> That's a movie with crazy, unlikable characters. And she's literally playing a serial killer in that. And her reputation in Hollywood was sort of along those lines. Not that she was a serial killer, but she was, you know, she had a lot of problems and she was a little bit wild. And to have her playing 
you know, the, the nice preacher's daughter, who is the only unlikable character in this movie, was kind of crazy casting. And there's things that she does in this movie that I just think are brilliant. You know, just some of her reactions and responses that, that if you just sort of watch her in the background, she's one of the most interesting things in this movie. Uh, so, I mean, I think the, the, the characters are all good here. Uh, not necessarily good as in likable, like you said, but they're good as in interesting. Uh, they all have distinct personalities. you got some great casting in this movie. Uh, this, is a, this is a good movie. Uh, now, did you get to the part yet where you did get to the part where they kill the bank teller, right? Yeah, where he want, Quentin Tarantino wanted to watch TV. Yeah, okay, so... so they, is this the one they kidnapped, or are you talking about someone else? Yeah, that's today? right. Okay. So, again, just a little bit that you might have missed in the movie. Uh, you have to watch this, and again, at the age of 15, 16, whenever I saw this, I probably didn't get all the subtleties, but along with Tarantino just sort of being paranoid and, uh, you know, assuming this guy was mouthing for help... He, he's a bit of a sexual predator. I mean, they even say in the, the news story, convicted sex offender, Richie Gecko. Uh, so with this bank teller, when Clooney leaves him alone, and he's just all of a sudden all nice, come sit on the bed with me and watch TV. And then when they come back, the, the fact that you don't see anything, you see Clooney walk in the room. And by the way, the burger place that they have there is the Big Kahuna Burger, which is famous for Pulp Fiction as well. That's just a little detail that Pulp Fiction fans would uh, be interested in. Uh, he just sort of, George Clooney's like so out of touch. He's just talking to him but this is what we're gonna do and then he's he's looking and he's like wait i got two burgers in the hand and all of a sudden just where's the woman he goes oh she's in the other room just the fact that tarantino is like casual she's in the other room what's she doing in the other room nothing and then he opens the door and you never see what he's looking at you you know just by the look on his face he's killed this woman and probably raped her too because he says later on you know what i don't do is i don't kill innocent people i don't rape women um, you get these little flashes, which you've caught that, whereas you're I like, just seeing... Yeah, they're... I like that detail of the, the reveal, it being this, yeah. like, like almost like seizure flash of, like, little bits of the blood splatter mm-hmm. everywhere. I thought that was, a, that was a, a nice way of doing it. Yeah, and, you know, I've tried to freeze frame it on before, and you still don't see much, but it's just little things, like, you'll get one frame in the middle of them talking of, like, blood on a lamp and all that. And it's 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 just a unique way of filming this without showing it being super violent because we're going to get super violent later on. Uh, but yeah, I think that's about as far as you got in the movie here. But I mean, I, I, I love everything in this movie here. And I think this is one of the reasons why I did watch the movie two times back to back because it is almost like two movies, even though I feel like it connects well. It is like two movies. So when you finish the movie, you're all of a sudden like, oh, I just finished this great vampire movie. You're like, oh, yeah, but what about all that stuff early on where it's just sort of a crime story about two brothers escaping the law? I like that, too. It, yeah, it really feels like a, almost like a relay race. And, like, the one director, like, handed the baton to the next person. And they're like, all right, your movie starts now. Yeah. Um, when we get to that part. But uh, but we'll, we'll obviously talk about the big change in uh, direction that the movie takes there. But, um, you know, following the the death of this woman um, and potential rape of this woman, uh, the brothers now need a new hostage because they need to get across the border. So they kidnap or they kidnap this family of three. Um, we get a really like the most uncomfortable scene of the movie here um, with like uh, Quentin Tarantino imagining what. Juliet Kate would say um, I don't even want to repeat it but like very yeah. uncomfortable like rape scene almost uh, he's del- like this is where it made it's made clear he is delusional he does see things yeah and then like 
the obviously follow up of this conversation later when he's like, "What were you serious back there?" And she's like, "What am I? I didn't say anything." Like, probably the worst part for me, but like, um, I understand why they needed to include it as a, as a part of his character. Like, but so they kidnap these three, and then they're they're driving the RV. We learn the backstory of Jacob, uh, that his wife was killed in an accident. Uh, George Clooney tries to get some details out of it, but like it's really weird that the, the way that the conversation goes. Um, they end up striking a deal that if they can get across the border safely, he won't kill anyone. Um, and if Quentin Tarantino touches Kate, he'll kill him. So they have a, a agreement made, sort of. And they get to the border. You know, they're checking people's cars. They're checking, making sure nothing's sort of illegal that they can't transport over or smuggling etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and so the plan is that the father and the son are going to be up at the front of the the rv and and then the other three are hiding in the bathroom uh they make some noise in the bathroom because the brothers are arguing because i forget what clooney says to him but he says something that offends him he said he was nuts. well he said don't act nuts or something like that and richie's like are you saying that i'm nuts yeah it sets him off and they're fighting and then they make like he knocks him out but that bang uh makes too much noise so like they have to explain why they're there so they say his daughter's there but that's suspicious because he didn't say his daughter was there before so they come on and check uh a really weird scene where she they open the door and she's just sitting on the toilet um very believable but like very weird to have like a movie for that and the other two are just hiding in the closet Long story short, they make it out of there okay, and then they make their way to this, like, trucker or biker bar, but, like, it's in the middle of the desert, which is a really weird location. Like, not even, like, off the road. It's, like, in the back, like, all the way off the road and everything, and it's the weirdest thing. Like, the the man comes outside, he's announcing, and but, like, it was just a, a weird way of introducing a bar in like a movie that I've seen. Like I, I can't even quite explain like at, at which point, like who was the main director of this? Like is my main question because like it still has parts of both films in it. But um, I feel like I stop here before the second half of the movie really kicks in. Uh, so when they kidnap the family, um, Again, I think this is still the Gecko brothers being like complete dirt bags too. Uh, not only do we have the scene where, first of all, just the way that Richie gets in there, where he's all charming at the door and like Jacob's sleeping, and he's like, "Hey, my lady friend and I just need to borrow your ice bucket." Like he's actually so innocent there that like you could believe that they would, even though George Clooney, when they almost ran him over, Kate even said something like "creepy looking guy." And I mean, if you look at George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino, you're going to assume Tarantino's the creepy looking one. Uh, but the fact is, like George Clooney is creepier. Quentin Tarantino has an innocence about him in this movie where y- you get that they would just let this preacher and his family would let him in the door. Uh, so yeah, the Kate thing where he envisions what he what she is saying to him, which of course she isn't. He's implying that she wants him uh, or she wants him to do something. She never actually said it, and the audience gets that. But uh, even with um, with the son um, Scott, where they make him open his mouth and put the gun like all the way to the back. Like again, it's very unnerving watching these guys with the family, and then the fact that they're questioning that that this kid is his kid 
and they even say again it's mildly racist here but this is who these guys are where he says this is my son he goes how does that work you don't look japanese and he's like neither does he he looks chinese and they just sort of shrug it off they're like okay <laughs> they just leave it at that you know uh they're just such terrible people and <laughs> this is why i don't get that you you think that all the characters are unlikable because it's sort of made to like the family here so you you didn't feel for the family at all uh well not entirely um just because i feel like it the whole time i was really thinking i was like this this is all his fault that all the father's fault that all of this is going to happen he insisted that they get into a real bed for the night mm-hmm. when they have like a, a a literal a mobile transporting home that they can move and drive wherever they want they can live and sleep and eat for free almost and he's like i gotta have a bed and like let's stay at this junky motel anyway like it just i was like it's almost like just desserts like this is what happens when you like make a bad like a pointless choice like this yeah well I mean, I, I didn't wish them dead. I wasn't like, haha, kill them all. It's like, oh, but... you should have just slept in your bed. Which, yeah, okay, I, I kind of get that. I think I understand a little bit more now uh, because I've had to live through this. Not sleeping in a mobile home, but, uh, you know, having uh, twins and a four-year-old who wake up at all hours of the night. And, uh, you know, often it's a lot easier for me to just go sleep on a couch downstairs. Like, I ran a half marathon two days ago and I felt fine and I slept in a bed that night. Uh, but the next night, you know, which was last night, I had to move downstairs because it was just too noisy upstairs and I slept on a couch all night and I woke up feeling worse after one night on a couch than I did after a half marathon and sleeping in a bed. So, uh, this is an older guy. (laughs) He's, uh, yeah, I mean, he, you, you can also get that we don't know where they're from. They've probably been on the road for a while now and he's maybe regretting his choice, but, uh, that's just my interpretation of it. Um, (laughs) You did say you don't wish death upon them for just choosing to sleep in a hotel instead of their mobile home, but uh, this is a guy going through a midlife crisis. We can give him uh, some benefit of the doubt here. Uh, yeah, so them kidnapping the family, I mean, this, again, makes perfect sense because it's the mobile home more than anything else they want. We need a spot where we could hide. I, I don't even know what their plan was going to be with that other hostage. Were they going to hide in the trunk and uh, expect this shaken woman to be able to get them across the border probably not so i mean i still wonder that to this day what was their plan originally because i don't even remember if they get into that uh in the tv series or not but um the mobile home makes total sense why they would want to kidnap them uh and one of my favorite scenes in the movie is just this interaction of them all talking you know with richie in the back with uh the kids and seth in the front with jacob uh get so much character stuff here and uh particularly with the the George Clooney Harvey Keitel stuff because I mean these are two pro actors and like let's not forget George Clooney he'd been acting for a long time but he was like a failed actor for the most part until ER came and this was the first movie he made after ER hit ER goes on a break after the first season and he films from dusk till dawn he's definitely not a movie star yet I don't feel any inexperience with him at all I feel like you watch this movie you you see him performing exactly as he would now 25 years later almost um and in this scene especially because it's such a tense scene between the two of them where he's grilling him for information but he's so laid back the whole time like nothing phases george clooney's character in this movie he's about to cross the board he's like whatever i don't i kind of have a plan but i'm sure something will work out if it doesn't i'll kill everybody that's just his thinking and harvey keitel who's 
very cool and calm at the same time, but obviously on edge. He's just stern when they're having the conversation where he says, if he touches her, I'll kill him. And George Clooney's just like, fair enough. Like, this is the guy who's basically already killed multiple people just because his brother's crazy and can't stop from shooting people or burning people or whatever. And he's still like, all right, I'll let you kill my brother. Like, He's so relaxed, but yet Harvey Keitel, the whole scene, even though he comes across as so cool, um, not cool as in, oh, I, I love this guy, just cool as in, like, very calm. He's always looking over his shoulder, which is a small detail I always love, that, like, he'll be holding the conversation, just quickly look over his shoulder, check on the kids, you know? Uh, it, it, it it's perfectly suits his character. Uh, and then the scene in the back, like you said, it is uncomfortable, you know, because Quentin Tarantino's still believing that Kate said something to him earlier on, and she has no clue what he's saying. And this is where the brilliance of Juliette Lewis kicks in, too. Because he's trying to say, what you said to me was, and before the words come out of his mouth, George Clooney cuts him off and tells him to put it in his mouth guard because he grinds his teeth, which is kind of like a little funny detail. Okay, he grinds his teeth, and he just... He doesn't care. I grind my teeth. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, later on when um, he's saying, you know, oh, this is what you uh, were saying to me. And he gets cut off. He just turns to her and says, we'll talk later. And her reaction there, she's like, sure. <laughs> she has like this really, I wouldn't even call it uncomfortable. It's more just like confused. Like like her eyes are wide and they're just sort of going back and forth. Like, all right, that was kind of weird. Uh, I just love her like background facial expressions in this movie. And again, even more appreciation knowing that this is this is out of character for her. Uh, the border scene, uh, do you want to talk about that now? You did, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, loosely. I mean, I, just that they were hiding in the bathroom and yes. she was supposed to be the cover and everything. I mean, it, it's a good plan. It's, it's completely working on the fly. And again, you wonder what would have happened if they hadn't come back there. I mean, did they have a scene off camera where they said, okay, we're going to take Kate in the back just as a hostage but meanwhile in his thinking he's like this is what we're gonna do because you don't see her come up with some big plan of oh they're coming now i'm gonna get in there um but when they do come on board and they've already knocked you know richie out and she's just sitting on the toilet what's gonna make somebody immediately look away when they open the door if you got your pants down now he's not immediately looking away he's a bit creepy and he kind of you know gets an extra look in there uh but it's such a perfect plan. You're like, that would completely work. I'm sure people have tried it to this day. And I'm sure because of the movie, they, they don't uh, <laughs> let people sit on the toilet anymore. Uh, I, I don't know how strict the border is normally, but this is obviously heightened because of them and they know that they're coming. Uh, also, a little bit of trivia here. The um, uh, the border guard here, Cheech Marin, uh, he's mostly famous for a series of movies in the 80s, like stoner comedies he made, Cheech and Chong, which I never watched and probably never will because it looks stupid. But he's like a Robert Rodriguez favorite, and I guess he's still kind of a little bit of a cult favorite to this day. Uh, he has three roles in this movie. Now, did you recognize him from his other roles? Um... I'm going to take that as a no. So Cheech Marin is the border guard here. And then when they get to the bar later on, he's the guy at the, the door, the, the announcer, the, the, the caller, uh, who has the microphone, who basically gets kicked, uh, which sets off the events once they're inside. Uh, he plays that character as well. And then he also appears at the end of the movie as the guy who actually meets them, who's their contact to get them into El Rey that they negotiate with, who said, oh, I've never been in this place. I just saw it on the road and it looked fun. Uh, so yeah, this one actor has three roles in this movie, but credit there to him that you didn't recognize him in any of them (laughs) 
and your turn. Oh, my bad. I thought you had more to say. <laughs> and then, okay, so pretty much at this point, like, it's a, it feels like a totally, it almost, almost, not not quite yet, but they, they get in the bar. Apparently, it's only a trucker bar because they try to go to the bar and get drinks, but you can only get it if you're a trucker or a biker. And so Jacob comes up with this plan to say, well, I'm a, I'm a trucker. I have this license that lets me drive bigger vehicles or whatever. And then uh, they... They, they they believe it, they trust it, they get their drinks, they you know, George Clooney's handing out shots to everyone. At first everyone refuses, but then they're all drinking at this certain point. Um you can see that like Jacob's sort of against it and everything, but he eventually just saddles along and goes with it and it and takes a drink and everything. Uh, they start like the and then the, the big show starts where this woman comes out and, and she's got the snake on her. Um, Please tell me you know who that is. Who is it? Selma Hayek? Okay, I know who that is. I I can't recognize just from seeing Uh, it. I thought she looked like Selma Hayek. (laughs) Maybe it would have clued in. Who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Selma Hayek does her show. Um, She's got the snake on her. She does dancing. She goes over the tables. Um, and then she goes to the, of course, of all people in the entire place, she goes to Quentin Tarantino's character. <laughs> um, she shoves his her foot in his mouth and pours, like, alcohol on it. Um, she's drinking from it. She's licking her leg. He's licking her foot. Like, it escalates to that. And then sort of then the show's over and everyone's, like, applauding. They loved it. Um and now that I'm thinking, like, how did this? Now I'm forgetting. How did the specific um, vampire the, how the vampires come, come out? Yeah, I don't like. I'm not blanking on how that happened. So she does the dance and everything, and then the guy, the other Cheech Marin character that they assaulted at the door to get in, comes in, and a fight starts, and they stab him in the hole of his hand, which caused to bleed a bit, which causes her to sense the blood and attack. Okay. So she attacks, she like, she bites him, right? She bites Quentin Tarantino? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then, and then like her, like, then she mutates into this like evil thing. Um, there's more fighting because I think they shoot the the guy at the door a lot of the time. Like he gets shot again and again and again, um, but he doesn't die. He like comes back. Um, and then, and then you realize like this place is not what it seems. Like all of the dancers and everyone that works there is like part vampire uh, and th- then th- this massive fight ensues. Uh, it, you can't even keep track of it because there's just cuts everywhere, bodies flying, everything. Um, and then obviously our main characters are, are trying to run out of the way and, and, and avoid the blood. Um, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when uh, is comes up now when Kate's behind the bar and the the one of the guys that they ran into at the beginning like comes to like kill her because they see her or something like that and she just throws shoves her across down his throat mm-hmm. and like he dies from that i thought that was a really that i think that was the most uh a subtle thing in the movie believe it or not um <laughs> so i really appreciated that and then more fighting ensues um it, it just gets crazy like i I stopped taking notes because there was so much going on. Like the one guy throws the four women on the table and then other people, he has the whip and everything. And it sort of dwindles down to these 
the four characters that we came with and these two new characters that we got to meet in the bar, Sex Machine and the other guy. <laughs> um, and then they, then uh, like they're trying to kill people and, and the, the whip guy gets bit and then he bites the other guy. Um, and then there's all the bats outside and, uh, and they also had this conversation about how you kill vampires and they're like, do we, we need silver and then not silver bullets, but silver. <laughs> and then Kate's like, does anyone have silver? I love all that right. scene. Pointless. Then Let's move on. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a, a fun scene in the, in the midst of this. Um, and then they're trying to barricade um, the one guy gets bit and then he bites the other guy and I think then all the bats come in because he gets thrown to, into the door all the bats come in uh, the three the characters run into the back room and then they're barricading themselves in there um, Jacob makes a cross out of two guns and then barges in there and then they sort of prepare for war um, they create holy water they create uh, weapons Kate finds a crossbow and uh, George Clooney outrigs something, I don't know what, and then he, uh, and then they start fighting, and then, uh, I'll just finish the fight, because it's almost over, um, the father officially turns at this point during the fight, and, like, the son, like, sees it, and so he's got to kill him, but he can't, and so he gets bit, and then there's, like, hundreds of things swarm on the son, and then Kate's supposed to kill all of them, and so she kills all of them, uh, they get they have very little ammo left they're surrounded and then the sun comes up so they're getting like pockets of sun which i thought was a cool visual in the in the the scene um and then carlos is his name i think finally arrives and so they shoot down the door they break out all the things die and and that's pretty much the end of the fight um then they have a discussion they finally asks carlos about why this place and if he can get a deal on the percentage paid um, or, or whatever the technical term was for that he pays them pays Kate and Kate wants to go with him which I guess Stockholm Syndrome makes sense but it was just a little weird for me um, and then the sunset they, they, they ride off into the sunset and then we get a full shot of this bar which is on this like burial ground like tomb Mayan style pyramid or something and then the movie's over. It is. Um, and it's great. And thankfully. Yeah. I just want to point something out before I even get into the rest of this. Uh, you have recapped this movie like somebody who would almost debate renting it, which doesn't match your comments at the beginning. Because you're saying that there's enough stuff you actually liked in this movie. And there's nothing that you've outwardly criticized, which is weird. Are, are you won over on this by recapping it at any I, I like it a little more than I started. I think that my there's just, I just don't care for it. That's the thing. I'm just like I want to get this recap done. I want to finish this. Um, I just didn't like it. it was out of nowhere that like all of a sudden it's this like horror movie out of nowhere. Well, and that's what I would be most interested in getting somebody's reaction to because the trailers for this give it away that that's what the movie's about. In fact, you you would almost be more caught off guard by the fact that it takes an hour and two minutes before any vampires appear. Uh, but I would love to see the reaction of somebody who went into this with no knowledge of what it's about, watched it start to finish and had nothing spoiled to see what their reaction would be. Cause I think that it actually, the transition's so subtle the way it happens, but 
it it I, I never quite picked apart how well it's done and, and the tricks they did use to make that transition until I had to take notes on it here. Um, first of all, in the bar, the bar itself is just a little bit cartoony. You know, everything about it is cartoony. Uh, the outside, the, the Cheech Marin character, you know, <laughs> calling people in there and announcing. Uh, even the fight scene when they get in there, we've seen these brothers be very vicious, very brutal. And that's why that scene in the hotel, I think, was so important where they were so brutal, like, you know, sticking the gun all the way down Scott's throat and things like that, where there's nothing comical about them at all. But yet when they're beating up the guy at the door, you know, I, I think... Uh, George Clooney just sort of twists his arm and breaks his arm and uh, punches them in the nose. And then Tarantino comes back and just starts kicking him repeatedly uh, in a comical way uh, where I think that it at least subtly tells the audience that this is going to be a little bit more fun and that, that, that something, a shift's about to happen in the movie here. Uh, the scene of them at the table also is good. Also, just mentioning Harvey Keitel with... Uh, the way that he um, explains that he's a trucker. Again, perfectly fits the fact that this is a preacher character where even though he's lost his faith, he is still unwilling to lie completely. So I just love the detail that when they say, hey, you can't be in here. This is for bikers and truckers only. And he's like, you know, you said this is for truckers only. Well, I'm a truck driver. If you look outside, you will see a big recreational vehicle. Like he doesn't even, he can't even bring himself to lie enough to say, I'm a truck driver, look at my license. He still has to say a recreational vehicle. And then he says, you have to have a class two license. This is my license. He's so proper and, you know, honest, even in what he's doing here is it's just a great little detail. Uh, them all around the table with uh, Juliette Lewis, where she's the only one where they insist, okay, you have to drink with us. Not the teenage boy yet, not the dad, because he said no, but the her. And she's so repulsed by it. But then when they say, oh, here, round two, she goes, yes, I will have another. Thank you. Like, she's already completely loaded. Uh, and then just the look that she sort of gives her dad, he gives her. Uh, the, uh, the, the little details like Quentin Tarantino looking at Scott and saying... If you want any of these girls to give you a lap dance, just let me know. Like, he's being so friendly to the kid all of a sudden, uh, which also I think it's important to see. Even though these characters are such polar opposites, you have a preacher and his kids. You have these disgusting, you know, bank robbers. Uh, there's a little bit of camaraderie between them at certain times where they kind of like each other, particularly with Richie here playing up on the the young son watching the strippers. Uh, there is a um, uh, a role in here of somebody who's been on the Oz Network, uh, which I couldn't tell you, you know, which character it is. She's one of the strippers, but uh, Ben had interviewed her recently for um, uh, it was Third Watch or something like that. The actress's name is Tia Texada, and she's one of the strippers in the scene. And Ben interviewed her last year sometime, I think, uh, or maybe it was even this year. And uh, I remember when that interview went up, I sort of looked up the filmography. I'm like, oh, she was in From Dust Till Dawn. We should have talked about From Dust Till Dawn, but uh, probably too small of a role because I still can't pinpoint who she was in here. But yes, we have interviewed somebody from Dust Till Dawn. That's something. Um, <clears throat> the way that uh, George Clooney's character sort of shifts, like he is the one who has it more together than Tarantino does. But when they're at the table and uh, he's a little bit agitated and Jacob even calls him out and said, why are you so agitated? And he's upset just because the guy laid his hand on him. That was the scene earlier on where they were saying, you can't drink here. And the guy puts his hand on his shoulder and 
the way that George Clooney's expression was there was take your hand off me. Like, he's a dangerous guy. Okay, that makes sense. But then you see, like, he has a problem the same way that Quentin Tarantino has a problem. He's very, uh, you know, uh, very agitated by somebody just laying their hands on him. All the things that happen in this movie and somebody who simply lays their hands on him has him so agitated where he's ready to kill everybody. Like, he's got his problems too. And then the way that Jacob talks to him too. Like, again, there's a little bit of camaraderie that develops between these characters, even though none of them like each other. Where Jacob says, are you so much of a loser that you can't tell when you've won? And like Clooney looks like he's ready to kill him. And just the, the, the way that the dialogue goes that like this is great Quentin Tarantino writing where he says, what did you just call me? He says, I didn't call you anything. I, I, I didn't make a statement. I asked a question. Are you that much of a loser that you don't know when you've won? And then he runs through the whole thing. You had all of the state of Texas looking for you. You made it across the border. You have all this money. You've won. Then they relax. And then he's like, I want you to join me for a drink. And again, they don't like each other, but like there's a little bit of a bond there. Uh, now, the transition with the Salma Hayek dance is very important in this movie. Um, not important the way that I would have thought when I was 15, 16 watching this, but important for the transition of this becoming a horror movie. Because even though this bar is a little cartoony and you get that there's a shift about to happen in the tone of this movie, for somebody who had no clue what this is about, which I don't know if there is anybody out there, if, if there is, I would love to talk to them and find out their reaction. But uh, the spookiness with her dance, the music that plays there, uh, the fact that she's got the snake wrapped around her, the fact that it goes on for so long and that it's very slow but kind of haunting, that's the transition to it becoming a horror movie. And I never quite pinpointed that till I took the notes on it. But it's, it's very important that that dance scene does go on as long as it does. Because if you simply had the scene of them drinking and then all of a sudden the guy comes in, stabs him through the hand and his vampires, it would be a lot harder to accept than if you had that kind of creepy dance that she does too. Um, and yeah, like you said, the fact that of all people, Richie, like as an audience member watching this, you're like, not him. Of all people, not this guy. <laughs> Don't do a strip tease on this guy here and get him liquored up at the same time. <laughs> it's just the, but it's not even necessarily the way it goes. Uh, the bartender here, my profile pick, Danny Trejo. You, you are, I'm hoping somewhat familiar with him seen him he is in like everything literally everything so yes this is one of the great success stories because he is like beyond a b-movie actor but um robert rodriguez when he made desperado the year earlier made danny trejo a henchman in that movie just because he thought he looks like a henchman and the character in despo that danny trejo played just throws knives it's it's almost like a you know mexican james bond thing uh henchman his gimmick is in he throws a hat he throws knives and when they were on the set he was talking to Danny Trejo about you know his character and not that this is the type of character who's just a henchman that throws knives and needs a backstory but just for the fun of it he's like what's the backstory of my character and they sort of both came up with this backstory of him being a former you know uh, Mexican federal agent that he would throw knives and stuff like that and they came up with a character even a name called Machete that they said this would make a great idea for a movie. And in 1995, before From Dust Till Dawn even, they were talking about this character Machete and let's make a, a big action movie with this guy named Machete. and It'll be really cheesy. Now that movie ended up happening. But before it happened, Danny Trejo would appear in every single one of uh, Robert Rodriguez's movies. And when they got to the point where they're like, we're never going to get around to making this Machete movie, I'm making a movie called Spy Kids. Let's make Machete the uncle. Now, if you ever saw even a clip of the Machete movies that would eventually follow, the idea that this character that came from Desperado 
originated in the Spy Kids movies is hilarious. Kids movies to Machete. Uh, because then when they made Grindhouse years later, kind of in the style of From Dust Till Dawn, they did fake trailers that played in between the Rob Rodriguez feature and the Quentin Tarantino feature. And one of those fake trailers was a fake trailer for the movie Machete that they thought they'd never make. That fake trailer was popular enough, they ended up making two Machete movies and have a third in the works. So, uh, Danny Trejo, this is a legend. Uh, and this... this I would think is probably the first prominent role that Rob Rodriguez put him in here as the bartender. Um, now, when the vampires eventually do come, again, I think that dance is important, but like it so quickly turns into a complete cartoon that I, I still can't figure out why it does work. And you say it kind of doesn't work for you. I say it does work for me. I think that's one of the appeal of this movie, that, that it is just so different from the first half. And that it does catch off guard. I mean, it's like being in the the shoes of the characters. They're not going to have any heads that this is happening. But some of the things that even from this point on in the movie won't be as cartoony as weird. Because we see a guy get stabbed through the chest and all the bodies just sort of disintegrate into ooze when they die. And the eyeballs from the one character roll into the pockets of the pool table, which is funny. Uh, and then the other thing, which I, I don't even know if you picked up on it. This is just hilarious. Is the band suddenly become these hideous vampire monsters and the guitar player is playing <laughs> a human torso with one leg still attached and strings on it as a guitar like that it's so ridiculous it's 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 kind of funny did you at least catch that good i caught it there we go uh it's just so st- i can i can see this movie it doesn't mean i have to <laughs> love well, what yeah, I see. it's it's so stupid but it's funny that they they chose making this really serious crime drama to suddenly become a vampire movie and they go so cartoony in the sequence and then from this point on it's toned down this is the most outrageous sequence of the movie uh the other characters who kind of become i guess the 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 hero faction here other than the gecko brothers and the the uh jacobin's family uh you have uh sex machine who's uh uh, Tom Savini is the, if you want to call him actor, he's actually just a special effects guy. This is the guy that in the 80s sort of made all the um, the, the Friday the 13th you know, uh, special effects gags. This is the master of special effects and horror makeup and everything. And they just thought, wouldn't it be fun if we put him in this movie uh, and barely even had him using makeup? He was just one of the non-makeup characters. And the other guy, Fred Williamson, who um, is the guy who rips the 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 vampire's heart out of its chest and then stabs it with a pencil uh he's a a former like black exploitation star from the 70s so this is like a total tarantino thing of let's take these kind of b-grade icons of the past like he did with john travolta and with pam greer and robert forrester and jackie brown and let's give them a prominent role in this movie i mean i think these guys are kind of fun again they're not nice guys but they're fun characters uh sex machine with his gun strapped to his dick uh, <laughs> his pants you know it's it's such a ridiculous detail even the introduction that him and kate have because kate's still like the, the the nice preacher's girl here and he says to, yeah when they're that going around killing they're just I'm killing all kate. the corpses that may be left behind and then it's like what's your name she goes kate what's yours sex machine and she's nice to meet you and it doesn't even bring up the fact that a guy with a, a gun strapped to his penis named sex machine just i mean listen if I encountered real life yeah. vampires trying to kill me, a guy named Sex Machine is <laughs> yeah. bottom of my yeah. list. Word exactly, very good point. <laughs> See the characters; they all have their motivations. It makes sense. Well, th- yeah, that was a moment. We... All right, I, we, I, <laughs> I still say we moment. have enough moments in this movie that you are too hard on it. Uh, 
the uh, I guess the rest of the movie it is pretty quick. Uh, although I should mention, I also really love the line. Uh, I guess it's more like a monologue that Salma Hayek has here. Uh, future Academy Award winner Salma Hayek too, by the way, <laughs> starting as Santanica Pandemonium in From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, where she's pinned down George Clooney and she's talking about you're a dog. Uh, I'm gonna make you my dog. Uh, and then she's when she transforms into the vampire version of herself, she says, "Welcome to slavery." And he goes, "Thanks. I already have a wife." <laughs> it's just, it's, it's it's such an absurd line. It's so good. Uh, and then all the clever ways that they kill these vampires. Like this is where I really got the preacher feel from it because I remember that episode of Preacher that we watched where uh, they, you know, had the intestines. They used somebody's intestines to siphon gas out of a gas tank. And we're seeing so... It's great, but we're seeing stuff like that here. You know, with all the little individual that kills, like the pencil through the heart and the the chandelier through Salma Hayek, uh, the, the eyeballs going into the pockets. Like, I love all this stuff. Um, when, yeah, all the bats come in and they have to hide in the room, uh, the speech that they have there too, where... Uh, Harvey Keitel is, you know, they're trying to persuade him, saying, you can turn water into holy water. You can kill these things better than we ever can. You're you're uh, you're one of God's boys. And he says, well, I've lost my faith. And George Clooney is you know, basically giving a pump him up speech. It's a great speech there, too. And then after they make all the weapons, like, you know, the 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 rotating uh the rotating stake uh, on that uh, motorized thing that George Clooney has, the crossbow and all that. Uh, Scott with his <laughs> holy water balloons, water balloons. Uh, that last moment where he's saying, before they go out there, I may be bit and I may turn into a vampire. Same with you guys. If that happens, you kill me right now. And uh, um, <laughs> I will just respond to you here and I'll edit it. <laughs> 20 minutes tops. Do you have to go somewhere? Well, uh... Okay. Let's I just mean, keep going. Work, so. Uh, 1.06. Yeah, you know, th- that, that last speech they have there, like, that, that's another really powerful moment, again, for the characters. Uh, and the fact that the, the kids are almost unwilling to say that they'll do it, like, especially Scott. Like, you're saying he's a pointless character. He's the one who's most resistant to killing his father, and what does he end up having to do? I mean, he ends up having to be killed himself, too. So I mean, that's kind of his character moment, I guess, if anything. And the last action sequence, I mean, it is what it is. It, I think it's great. Uh, there's so much chaos there that you know, people are dropping like flies. Uh, you know, Jacob turning into a vampire, that's such a good twist. I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw that coming because he's really the hero of the movie up until this point. He dies, you know, Scott dies here. That's why I think it was more important to have Kate have a little bit more character than Scott because as much as this movie is filled with you know totally unlikable characters you need to have at least one that you're going to root for in the end and if you're going to have to watch a teenage boy die you're probably not going to want to be that invested in him so it is important if scott has a lack of character that uh you know that's the reason why uh, although he has a lot more character in the tv series which we should cover by the way uh, <laughs> i'm sure rossi will be jumping at the chance to do that um yeah, like the the final thing where they have to shoot all the holes through the ceiling. Again, I agree. I think the visual of that is fantastic. I mean, this movie is complete chaos, and it is so gory and so graphic. And just going back to the beginning of the movie, I think it's interesting that we really see no violence. We see that opening shootout scene where a man catches on fire, and that's it. But after that, they're doing those little cuts, like the flashes of the bank teller instead of actually showing her 
being killed and we have the death toll instead of actually seeing what their crime spree was that started this uh, so that by the end of the movie you know you saved all of you're not conditioned to violence is real and it's you know personal once you get all the violence it is cartoony and it's acceptable to just watch you know blood and guts everywhere uh, and then yeah also just the thing with Carlos showing up at the end the fact that George Clooney I always looked at this from Carlos's point of view where Clooney's like <laughs> Please, Rossi, tell me that you like this uh, this this line here, where Clooney's freaking out and he punches him and says, "Do you have any idea what this place is?" And then he says, uh, "What were they psychos?" And he goes, "Psychos? Do they look like psychos, Carlos? They were vampires." And Carlos just like, "I'm sorry, I didn't know. Like, did you at least like that moment?" Yeah, I, the line that um, like that line really never didn't stand out to me as much. I was more interested in the finally like he's finally haggling <laughs> yeah. for the price of the thing i was a bigger takeaway of that although it was a fine line like like you brought up a line before i was like yeah it was a fine line um but nothing to stand out uh, i preferred others with uh the fact that he barters with them in the end a nice little detail because as i said of all the the times where we see richie just being delusional throughout the movie the one time where he ended up being right was the one where it's most absurd, where he's like, sure, let's just bargain with these guys. And Clooney's like so adamant. You can't bargain with these people. This is essentially the mob. You you can't bargain with them. And he ends up being able to bargain with them for a lesser percentage, you know, at the end. What I love that detail. Um, the thing with Kate wanting to go with him in the end, I think when I was younger, I definitely interpreted that more as like a Stockholm thing, like you said. But I think the older I get, the more times I see this movie, and I mean, it's dozens of times I've seen this movie now, I view it more as like, this is this preacher's daughter who had her mother die, her family kidnapped, her brother and father turned into vampires, she now has all this money, she has a motor home, what's she going to do? I mean, they said earlier in the movie that she wasn't 21 yet, so let's just say she's 20 years old, never been away from her family. I kind of looked at it more as like, who else does she know? What else can she do? So maybe it can be interpreted both ways. I mean, I, I at one point interpreted it more of like a Stockholm syndrome thing. And then at another point, I interpreted it as, uh, you know, that she just had nothing else. So what was she going to do? And then just George Clooney's response. I mean, this is where we get the one redeeming moment of his character because he is a terrible person throughout the course of this movie. Uh, we just know that he's not as bad as Richie, but here where she's saying, I'll go with you, and he says, do you know what El Rey is? And she's just sort of like, no. And he says, go home. Like He doesn't want to put her through that. He knows that they've just killed all these vampires, but this El Rey place would be the worst thing in the world for her, and he has some compassion on her. And then, of course, that, that final moment where they pull back and you see the temple there. Like, it's it's such a great little twist at the end where it's not a twist where you're like, oh, cliffhanger, you know, sequel. But you realize, like, there's more going on than just this is some strip club in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we do get a little bit more of that in the sequels, which I guess we could talk a little bit about because I know you haven't seen them. Uh, but it's just a great way to end off on the movie. And then the soundtrack, too, I just want to say. I love the soundtrack for this movie. I mean, every song in here is great. And uh, this song at the end, the ZZ Top song, She's Just Killing Me. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite songs there is. And just yesterday, I was trying to learn how to play this song on guitar because I was excited about this movie. And I still can't figure it out. It's it's pretty complicated. But uh, uh, one of these days, I will learn how to play it. And maybe next year, we'll do From Dust Till Dawn uh, Part 2, like we do at The Room every year. Uh, hopeful of that. And uh, <laughs> maybe I'll be able to play She's Just Killing Me by then. Yeah, so, like, I feel like it's this weird mix of, like, part Stockholm Syndrome, because that's what happens. There's this really interesting movie I watched called Stockholm, 
where it talks about this uh, where like these bank robbers kidnap people and they're like at the very end of the movie they're like helping the bank robbers avoid the cops um, and like I believe that that's like a part of this but also part of me thinks of like in uh, in the horror side of things where like where people team up like because they're like put in this dangerous situation and you're like helping each other survive so like part of that's like you build this like you have this weird relationship because you were kidnapped by this person but at the same time like you worked together to do something so you feel like this weird extra bond so it's like i feel like it's a bit of i have that movie uh on my list here to watch too i haven't gotten around to it yet but your recommendation may push it push it over the top stop them yeah no it's it's a good movie and it really is a good like way of showcasing like how real Stockholm syndrome is do any of the uh, kidnappers or hostages turn into vampires in it though uh you'll have to wait (laughs) well let's hope um the surprise werewolf ending (laughs) will surprise you though (laughs) just bring your silver or silver bullets Uh, but yeah I, I just think it's a bit of both I think that that's what makes I feel like I did. I feel like at the beginning I was very down on all the characters. I do think Kate, by far and away, the best character. Um, and then this is like a part of it, like just like I feel like her character was the one character that got nuance, got um, subtlety. Like not her as the actress, but like the way they wrote it and the way that, that it was now, done. What about uh, at least and- the, the scene where George Clooney has to face the fact that his brother's just turned into a vampire, and after doing so much to protect his brother, including killing other people blowing places up all this stuff just to protect his brother he finally reaches a point where he has to kill his brother like that was a good moment well i will say i kind of um was like trying to skip around the parts that i thought were not like boring but i was just like all right skip ahead skip ahead and then i realized i'd skip past you skip past one brother killing another brother I just thought I just was like, all right, this fight's going on too long. I skipped oh. and I skipped too much, and so Good. I had to go you back and rewatch back. it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was fine. I just, I just didn't care for Quentin Tarantino's character. So I was like, you're not supposed. This. <laughs> and so I was just like, let him die. I don't care. <laughs> like, now before we kind of wrap everything up here with the closing segments, uh, I did say that they made two straight to video sequels to this. I can remember when they came out. I got so excited because I think one of them came out on my birthday a couple years later and I'm like oh and this is like okay straight to video sequel now that's a completely different thing like in the late 90s early 2000s whatever straight to video sequels weren't really a thing yet now if a movie gets straight to video sequel you know it's garbage at this point it was just oh we're skipping theaters we're giving you a nice pleasant surprise there weren't a lot of straight to video sequels so when it came out and I knew that Rod Rodriguez was still involved in it and Quentin Tarantino were still producing the movie I got really excited uh, the two sequels they made, uh, Texas Blood Money, the second one basically follows, it takes place almost at the exact same time frame of this, and it's that there was a second set of people who are accomplices in the bank robbery that the Gecko Brothers are kind of getting away with, and that they're going to sort of meet up, they think meet up to share the money, and they sort of have their own adventure with the same bar and vampires and everything. That one could have been a decent movie, but because it was low budget, they hired, I think, a first-time director who filmed it like it was a student film, and it just looked awful. Uh, and then the third movie, which had better production values, Texas, or not Texas Blood Money, was it Hangman's Daughter, went back in time to like the late 1800s, where you get a lot more about the, the history of this temple and everything, uh, which 
with a better production values was just an awful movie. So that one I've never rewatched since. I actually rewatched Texas Blood Money a few years ago, but uh, it, it at least spawned a series of sequels. So it was it was a popular movie. Um, and let's find out how popular here. Um, I don't know if you have anything up here on uh, box office or reviews, or if you want me to cover that. No, I, I was curious. I didn't look it up, but I want to know the right. Okay, so it's got 62%, <laughs> which is not bad. Um, is that the that's audience critic. or critic? Audience is higher than that. Uh, on IMDb, it's got a 7.2. <laughs> so uh, this movie's definitely, the reputation's improved over time. Because I remember at the time it came out, it didn't get good reviews. I remember audiences were sort of like indifferent on the movie. It wasn't thought of as a classic. And in years since, probably because of the popularity of Tarantino. People, I think it's people understanding Tarantino's writing more and people understanding Robert Rodriguez's style more and embracing that when this came out, making an intentional B movie was not a thing. And now because we've had Grindhouse and we've had uh, Machete and all those other things, it's more acceptable. So this more popular with audiences critics, but popular with both. Um, box office... This opened number one at the box office when it came out in January of 1996, uh, $10 million. Uh, it beat out Mr. Holland's Opus, a movie that quite frequently gets brought up by me and Ben. Uh, other movies out were 12 Monkeys, which it bumped from the number one spot, Eye for an Eye, and Grumpy Euro Old Men, as well as the original Jumanji and Heat and the original Toy Story. So uh, it made some money when it came out for you know a low-budget, B-grade crime horror film. Uh, ended up uh, making a decent amount of money. Uh, overall box office, uh, if I could find it, like, let's just say $50 million. Uh, yeah, $59 million worldwide. So pretty good profit for this movie. That's just why I think they were willing to gamble on two straight-to-video sequels at least. Uh, plot keywords. Do you want to do plot keywords or do you want to do a one-star review? One-star review, someone on my side. Again, I'm standing by the fact you have not argued a one-star review here, but uh, let's go with it anyways. I, I'm not saying I give a one-star review, but I just need someone. You some need negativity, negativity out of this. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's go with be ready to groan at a pun, dot, 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 ready, dot, 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 this sucks. Uh, this includes spoilers, by the way. I love dissing this movie. I'm, I'm going to summarize some of this. I love dissing this movie. My peers always try their best to defend it, probably out of love for Quentin Tarantino or Harvey Keitel, but they've never convinced me that this one should be treasured. Here's some huge reasons. A, the plot goes from kidnapping road trip movie to vampire-inhabited strip bar slasher flick with no setup whatsoever. I think that's the point of the movie. Uh, B, the untalented Juliette Lewis. What an idiot. Uh, three, preposterous ideas abound, such as actual torso and leg guitars. Brothers with the last name Gecko. Why is the last name Gecko something preposterous? Uh, bad vampire makeup jobs. This movie has incredible makeup. I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, a crotch-based gun that only fires when erect and belongs to a guy who goes by sex machine. <laughs> Clearly this person does not understand the movie. The only thing even close to being considered my favorite scene is George Clooney's laugh-out-loud cheesy monologue after he kills his blood-sucking, horny-for-children, terrible-acting brother. I swear, I think they thought it up right then and there. This movie's out to offend and ends up offending those who want the offensive. Horrible movie. I say an idiot. Um, yeah. You somewhat agree. They, they knocked Not Juliette bad. Lewis, one of the best things in this movie here. Yeah, that's that, that was that, that was it. All right, so plot keywords. Me. What great <laughs> months can we have? 
coming up. <laughs> Rossi, are you looking forward to Pervert Month on the Oz Network? <laughs> I think that would be the day that I handed in my resignation Well, if you look at the movies we could potentially cover, maybe you wouldn't, because we could be covering Beetlejuice, Bombshell, Family Guy, It, The Goonies? Who's the pervert in The Goonies? Uh, How about Toe-Sucking Month? This is the best... This is the gift to plot keywords. Toe-Sucking Month featuring The Devil's Advocate from Dust Till Dawn, The Dreamers, or The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, what are the things we have here? White Panties Month, uh, Sexual Predator Month, <laughs> Foot Fetish Month, Foot Sucking Month, uh, Wisecrack Humor Month, Reference to Peter Cushing Month, uh, Man Wears Eyeglasses Month, ooh, uh, featuring The Office, The Blacklist, Breaking Bad, and The Gentleman. Uh, there's gotta be at least one other good one in here. Let's see, Maniac Month, Aztec Pyramid Month, Obscene Gesture Month, uh, Mexican Band Month, Heart Ripped Out Month, Severed Head Month, <laughs> uh, Heart in Hand Month. This is the one. Uh, if we had Heart in Hand Month, we could be talking about Once Upon a Time. That is the Disney show, by the way. Uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, It Chapter 2, and Alita Battle Angel. Apparently, Robert Rodriguez had a thing for Heart in Hands. Uh, all right. Segment's done. Rossi, what are you doing with this movie? Don't disappoint me. Okay. I feel like I came in at a one-star review, but I didn't talk about it like a one-star movie, if that makes sense. Um, I said it was a bad movie. I still think it's a bad movie. I'm going to bin it. However, I will say it's better than the bad movies we watched during Bad Movie Month. It, it's better than the bad movies we watched during that, like, I still think God's is yes. worse than this. Because this is meant to be... Like, <laughs> and it's, Battleship it's the whole point to be a bad movie. Like, you give it some credit for that, right? I do always have a problem with, like, parody movies, because that's what essentially this, what this is, when I don't mm-hmm. know it's a parody movie. So, like, when I go into a movie thinking it's one way and it's a, actually a parody movie, it always messes me up. So that's why I definitely think I need to rewatch this at some point, not in the next year or so, mm-hmm. but, like, in a while because I know then I know it's a parody then I can catch all those details that I probably missed this time around so it's a bin but it is higher than Good. I came in at like it's closer to a rent than when I started then and you should be proud <laughs> that you convinced me to not straight out uh bottom I'm of glad, the barrel this movie is a classic and I am buying it I am so buying this uh strangely enough I do not actually own this movie uh, I wanted to, for the longest time, get the box set that had the straight-to-video sequels in it as well. And then last year, when I think the the second and third were on AMC, I watched the second and tried to watch the third. And I immediately changed my mind and said, I will get just from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, but it's always on Netflix or Amazon Prime, and it's on TV every single year, so I don't go out of my way to buy it. But I mean, this to me, this is like, this is this is a treasure, this movie. <laughs> I I, I am very curious, though, about this show, just because of the fact that you say they do yeah. subtlety for the, the, the reveal at the end. So I'm curious. I'm really curious about that, because that was one of yeah, my biggest... Honestly, it, we should put negatives. that on the list to do, even if we just committed to, let's do, I think it's only 10 episodes, let's do season one of From Dust Till Dawn or something like that. Uh, because it's it's a very, it's a very good show. The fact that they can first stretch this entire movie into one season without it feeling like filler. It's one of the few shows I could think of that really doesn't have any filler at all. 
you know, the characters are very different. Like Richie is not comically unlikable. He's actually just completely crazy and like creepy. Uh, they get a good cast for the show. Um, they, they get Robert Patrick to play Jacob, who played the T-1000 in Terminator. He also starred in For Dust on 2, which is kind of funny. Uh, and yeah, there's so much more you get with the characters and then the mythology and everything. Uh, th- there's tons of great stuff from, from Dust on TV series. I mean, we should definitely put it on the list. Uh, also, uh, not for the next year, so. <laughs> you need a break, a break from Dust I'll also mention the show yes. helped launch. Robert Rodriguez founded the TV network, which we don't get it here in Canada, but the El Rey network, uh, which was meant to be a Hispanic television network and he he sort of started the network with from dusk till dawn as like their first original show and it lasted for a couple of seasons or whatever uh and just the fact that he called his own tv network the el rey network after the the city in this movie i mean robert rodriguez has a lot of uh a lot of love from from dusk till dawn and i i think both robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino their careers turned out okay after this movie same with george clooney so good stepping stone here if nothing else right I wasn't sure when this movie was made. So at first I was like, geez, how desperate was George (laughs) Clooney to get a role that he did this? But then I realized, then you said it was his, one of his first roles. So I was like, oh, makes sense. So Rossi, you got to tell us what we're covering next week, because this is one that I have no clue about. And, and I'm sure it's going to be a a very easy transition from, from dust till dawn to the fairy godmother or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. A movie that tracks Themes. I, I'm surprised it wasn't there in the IMDb uh, yeah. <laughs> tags uh, in any of those. But we're going to be watching Scary Godmother, uh, which was a like a, one of those TV movies, not Disney Channel, but one of those TV movies that always comes on around Halloween. Uh, it's animated, and yeah, it's just it's a very short movie. It's on YouTube, so if people are interested in watching it with us, you can just find it there. It's not even an hour long. And this is another one of those uh, childhood treasures of mine that I keep putting on to you. <laughs> but that's only fair because you did that with me for this movie. So. Uh, so literally all I know about this movie is I looked it up and saw it on YouTube and I can see a clip of the animation, like, you know, a five second thing of the animation. The animation looks interesting. Um, yeah, it's not a typical animation style that I feel it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, a now, unique now the, one. One thing I'm curious about this is, is this going to be a complete kid-friendly thing, or is this more... It, it almost looks Tim Burton-like in a way to me. I was going to say, like, it has, like, that feel, like, of of um, Nightmare Before Christmas, where that, it, like, where that is, like, a kid's movie, but you also see, like... It could be a little adult, too. Um, I don't really remember how far this goes i feel like it is more um it may be more in line with like the peanuts peanuts very kid-friendly has like a very moral message to it but like i think you could get adults enjoying it but at this that's total guess because i don't remember this movie that well i barely remember i only remember the beginning a little bit well if uh anybody wants to they can go back and listen to the great pumpkin charlie brown which we covered and i'm sure i'm going to be watching uh, a million times this month because I now have a four-year-old who is completely obsessed with Charlie Brown and if he ever discovers our podcast uh, will then listen to our recap of it a million times. He might have been he on He may have, yeah. <laughs> we could show him one day, listen, this was your debut as we talked about Charlie Brown. Uh, but 
I can tell you right now, for, from whatever we've covered in years prior, the good and the bad, for whatever scary godmother's going to be next week, it will still not be my least favorite thing that we will cover this month because we're going to have to do the craft after that. So I'm already predicting a more positive <laughs> review for me from Scary Godmother, knowing nothing about it, than you will get from the craft. And if I'm wrong, then let's just scrap the craft. Can we make that a rule? No? I was going to say you might like it okay. more than Twitches. So. <laughs> well, that's something. Um, other than that, uh, we have um, uh, George of the Jungle coming up on Friday. Uh, the beginning of our Brendan Fraser month, which ended up being a, a completely insane episode. One, I think one of the best episodes Ben and I ever recorded, uh, partly because I barely remember George of the Jungle, and it was way better than I remembered, and it's an amazing movie, and I almost wish we could do an annual episode on George of the Jungle just like we do The Room, but we're going to have lots of Brendan Fraser stuff. And also, Amazing Race. We're going to have something for The Amazing Race when it comes out, right? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. I gotta do my Me too. I just realized that this morning. Uh, so yeah, Amazing Race will be debuting. I think by the time you're listening to this today, uh, it may take us a couple days to get an episode out. We're going to. We'll probably end up doing like we'll do a premiere recap, a mid-season recap, an end-of-season recap. Uh, there's definitely too much going on to cover an entire season, but it's new television. It's Amazing Race, so we're excited to talk about it uh, in some fashion. So uh, lots of stuff coming up this week. Yeah, busy, busy time. Halloween. Uh, oh yeah, um, I'm supposed to say goodbye. Um, uh, I'm Rossi, and uh, I'm mouthing the words right now. Help me. Uh, and my name is Colin, and they weren't psychos; they were vampires. Thanks for downloading this episode from the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as find out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at theoznetwork.net. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll speak to you next time.